you to go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, you'll find Morris Antiques Mall there. And nothing on the inside distinguishes this antique store from dozens like it in town. But there's this musty smell. You know that smell. Anybody do antiquing and you go around? I love it. But you get this musty smell, right? This dusty uh, smell of the old relics from the past. But if you were to look closely at the outside of the Morris Antique Mall, you'd see something that makes it distinct. Is that before it was an antique store, it was a church building. How many church buildings have you driven past in your journeys across this state and across the country only to realize that they are no longer in operation? How many structures have you seen that once represented a vibrant witness for Christ that once held a gathering of people like we have here this morning who burned with fire for worship and from the, whose hearts beamed the light of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ is our salvation, but now house only a cobwebbed memory of ministry. Sadly, there are way too many of those. And I think I told you about the first time I went to Scotland many, a few years ago, encountering a, an historic church, many historic church cathedrals in Aberdeen, which have been restructured now and reopened as theme bars and restaurants. One former church that I encountered now houses a vampire bar. And I realized that the church is not a building. The church is people, right? However, what grieves my heart is when I ask the question of those churches, where are the people that once met in the building? Someone has said that a focus on the future is what prevents a church from becoming a resting place for rusty relics. In one sense, that is indeed true. The church needs to have vision for the future, no question. Yet I believe more than, than what prevents a church from becoming a resting place for rusty relics is not necessarily just a vision for the future. It's a focus on Jesus Christ and on a willingness in the hearts of his people to let his life flow through them. As you all know, it's not cutting-edge technology, it's not creative programming, nor is it the polished preaching or well-executed presentations that keep a church alive. While those things can enhance a ministry's life, when it's all said and done, it's the person of Jesus Christ who gives it life. Without him, there is no church. So last year, we celebrated 225 years of ministry, as you know, at Fayette Baptist Church. First Light, the, our radio program, celebrated 22 years this past June. And um, this church has experienced a lot of excitement, fruit-bearing revivals over the centuries, and has been threatened with the frustration of bare-bones survival at times as well. Yet, God has seen fit for 226 years to keep these doors open. Amen. The ministry of our church, though, I believe, has remained alive strictly, I think, because in his grace, he has always preserved a remnant of people here who never took their eyes off of the one thing that can breathe life into the church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and the life-changing message of the gospel. John wrote in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, in him was and is life. And the life was and is the light of men. You may be saying, well, that's pretty obvious, Russ, so what is the big deal? Why are you telling me this? Pretty elementary, wouldn't you say? You're right, it is. Yet it's precisely the elementary things that we must keep in focus if we're going to endure challenges we face today, we will face in the coming years, will test our commitment. They will tax our strength. Just read the newspaper, watch CNN, watch whatever you want. In the culture, we are going to be taxed. The increased pull of the world toward compromise, the difficulty of remaining relevant in a society that's bombarded with new and oftentimes tainted information and the lure of new religions 
often utilizing cutting-edge technology and advanced communication techniques to manipulate and even control people's thoughts and emotions. I was reading an article a few weeks ago about a church that hadn't even started yet, and through data analysis, opened their doors, and on the first Sunday, they had over a thousand people, strictly by marketing techniques and data analysis of the, of the demographics of where they were. Now, all those things are good things to help us to minister to the masses. However, they often also open up the doors to manipulation and even the ability to control people's thoughts and emotions. Those are just the tip of the iceberg of what we'll be up against in the coming years. If we seek to remain true to Christ, our credibility will be questioned. Our credentials will be denied. Our message will be discounted and attempts will be made to discredit the true ministry of Christ. These are exactly the things that, believe it or not, that the Apostle Paul encountered in his ministry to the Corinthian church just 60 years, mind you, 60 years after Jesus' death. Dogged by false teachers, misrepresented by heretical accusers, hounded by persecutors and frustrated by fickle followers, Paul had to know what it takes to survive. These things plagued him throughout his ministry, and yet something within him drove him to endure and enabled his ministry to last. His ministry was not about to become obsolete. He didn't want the church of Jesus Christ to become a resting place for rusting relics. And so in writing to the Corinthian church, he laid down his philosophy of ministry survival. It was very simple. It was very much to the point and very powerful. And I can summarize it in a sentence. It's simply this. A lasting ministry will depend upon a life-changing message. That philosophy of ministry allowed Paul to survive, to fight the good fight of faith, and to finish his course. And it is the same philosophy that will allow your ministry and my ministry and this church's ministry to endure. It is the principle that will allow Fayette Baptist Church's doors to remain open for the next 226 years if Christ doesn't return. And Lord, I hope he does. There are a lot of people that still need to hear the gospel. That philosophy is no more clearly seen than in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let me read down through them for you. I like this morning. It was great. We had scripture reading interspersed throughout the music. Isn't that great? It's the way church service ought to be. Focus on the word. The music and the word. These things are not separate ministries from each other. These things are extensions of one another. Let me read down through this text. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the time remaining, I want to give you four things that I'm convinced that we need for ministry survival based on this passage. Four things Paul underscores as essential to the survival of any church or personal ministry amidst the global and cultural changes that not only have taken place throughout history, but are currently taking place as well. And here's the first thing, that I'm convinced, totally convinced, that in order for the church to survive, we must restore character to the ministry. 
verses 1 and 2 here. Let's read them again. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth. Of truth. Over the past few months, I have been deeply, deeply saddened at the news that the pastor of a church with which we have been associated with for years was charged with sexual misconduct by multiple women with whom he worked. Now, what shook me more was the fact that this has occurred over the span of 35 years in what all of us would call an incredibly, incredibly fruitful ministry. Now, how much credibility do you think that pastor has lost now in the eyes of his community? That's sad. And we pray for him and his family. But worse yet, how much credibility the truthful message of the gospel he preached may have lost in the eyes of a watching world. There's an old poem that makes a powerful point here. When wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, everything is lost. And that is true whether it refers to an individual or an entire church. Character is everything. And Paul underscores the importance of the character of the ministry that we have received. How can it be restored? By striving to maintain these things. First of all, to maintain an attitude of humility, to maintain spiritual vitality, inward sincerity, and outward integrity. Those things all right here in these verses. First of all, humility. We must be mindful of our undeserved favor from God. Therefore, Paul says, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy. Now, the first thing we need to restore is being mindful of the fact that we have been given a ministry. You've been given a ministry. I've been given a ministry. And that by, because we were all talented and gifted? What's it say here? As we have what? Received mercy. We've been given a ministry by the mercy of God. What ministry? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of of him in every place, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of of God. Dr. Dave Lambertson, one of my instructors and professors from Bible College, preached this passage that I just read to you at my ordination on May 5th, 1991. But I have not forgotten that charge. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Paul asks the question, who's adequate for these things? And then he answers, it's such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves as to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You and I have a ministry. We are the fragrance of God to the world. At least we're supposed to be. To some, we represent the sweet smell of abundant life. To others, the stench of death. That's what the gospel does, doesn't it? The gospel divides. The word divides. It brings joy to those who are ready to receive it, and it brings the sentence of death upon those who want to reject it. We don't do that. The gospel does that. We're not only a fragrance of God, but we are also his ambassadors, the Bible says. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation to share the incredible news that Jesus Christ has bridged that canyon of separation between us and God that we could not bridge on our own. 
That's our ministry. If we're believers in Christ, Paul says that we have it. It's been given to us as we've received mercy. It's in our possession. It's our responsibility to engage in it. And you know when that ends? When Christ comes back. Right? He's given it to us until Christ comes back. So how is it that I sometimes act as if I can put it on hold? That I have the option of letting up and laying back. Because sometimes I think about that. Do you ever struggle with that? Here's some of the convicting questions that I hear God whispering to me through this passage. And quite possibly you might too if you really sit down and meditate on it. So I'm picturing God asking me these questions as I'm reading through this this week. Russ, when was the last time that you really shared the good news of my son Jesus with somebody? Now, I'm not talking about living it out in front of them. I'm not talking about preaching it from the pulpit, which you do every week. I'm not talking, I'm talking about getting one-on-one with somebody who is very far from God and sincerely and lovingly sharing the gospel with them heart-to-heart, face-to-face, introducing them to Jesus Christ and inviting them to become his committed follower. The Spirit says, Russ, when was the last time you woke up and he prayed these words? Lord, would you connect me with someone today with whom I can share the love of Christ. When was the last time you were intentional about giving somebody hope? When was the last time you sincerely asked the Lord, Father, would you reveal something to me that I can do this week for another person that would bring a smile to their face and to yours? The day after writing those words that I just read to you, God prompted me to do just that. And I actually did it. (laughs) Praise God. I know you're all thinking, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to obey every time God tells you to do something. (laughs) Well, I strive to. But I'm like you. How mindful are we of the precious hope that God has given us? It's a privilege to bear such such a life-changing message, isn't it? People's eternal destiny depend on that. Moreover, how often do we take into account that the only reason that we have this privilege is because God has had mercy on us? Listen to Paul. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious the Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them all. Paul says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. See, we quote these verses, but do we really make them apply to us? Paul never forgot the mercy he received. He didn't. Nothing will humble us more than a long walk down memory lane into our past. To the point where you were B.C., right? Before Christ. Are you discouraged? One of the first things you can do is remember how God in his mercy has delivered you from your past. I'm thankful. Are you? 
An old saint once said, when I grow weary of well-doing, when my faith sags and my spiritual heart faints, I remember. I go back to my former life before I became captive to God and I take this long walk up and down the street of my sinfulness. When I return, I'm so full of thanksgiving to God who saved me, so full of the mercy and grace of God that my heart is once again singing and my feet dancing with joy. He's turned my mourning into dancing, right? Now, I know Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. But Paul also said what I just read to you in 1 Timothy, that he never forgot the fact that he was the worst of sinners and Christ Jesus saved him by his mercy. Friends, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. It's a gift. That's what propels us onward. Humility is what keeps us going strong. Secondly, vitality, spiritual vitality. We must maintain an undying determination to endure. Verse 1 again, since we've, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. It was also God's mercy that sustained Paul through the difficulties of his ministry. There is evidence that Paul battled with episodes of discouragement and depression in the scripture. But because of the character of his ministry, he refused to throw in the towel and stop doing it. He was deterred by no difficulties, embarrassed by no opposition, driven from his purpose by no persecution, and his strength did not fall under any trials. You know what really hurts me and disturbs me sometimes is when people who are so gifted in something walk away because of some pressure or difficulty in whatever it is they're doing in their ministry. I mean, Paul was tempted how many times to do that? How often? When Paul suffered disillusionment and discouragement, he could focus on the finish line and the glorious joy that would, that, that finish line would bring. Look at 2 Corinthians. Skip down a little bit to, to verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, jars of clay, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be from where? God, not from ourselves. When we're weak, he's strong. Remember that bent nail message? You know, pull out those bent nails again and remind yourself of them. We are afflicted in every way, he says, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. But here it is, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. All of that to say, Paul says, keep your eye on the finish line. No matter what you're going through, keep your eye on the finish line. Ministries that last, churches that endure, Christians that finish strong are characterized by an attitude of humility and awareness of the mercy they've been shown. Spiritual vitality, an undying determination to never say die. And thirdly, they are characterized by sincerity. Sincerity. We must maintain an undeniable distinction in the world. Look at verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what happens when a ministry blends into the world? When it begins to make concessions in order to become successful? 
When he begins to focus its attention more on buildings and bodies and, and bucks and less on content and compassion and Christ, the ministry is doomed to eventual failure if that switch takes place. Last week, I quoted philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who warned that the day when Christianity and the world become friends, Christianity is done away with. Paul couldn't have said it better himself here in this text. His opponents were accusing him of manipulation and deceit in order to serve Paul's own ends, and that he used the gospel for selfish gain. That's what 2 Corinthians gets at. But Paul answered those charges in no uncertain terms right here in verse 2. Let me give it to you in a little bit of a different flavor. I'm going to read verse 2 out of the message for you. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. And we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open. The whole truth on display so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. Now let me tell you that every single church, every pastor, runs into the temptation to do just exactly what Paul says he did not do. Living in this world, with the church being big business today, don't you think it's a temptation to maneuver and manipulate and use scripture to suit your own ends. And sometimes it's done very innocently and you don't even realize you're doing it. But this is what I'm saying this morning in this message. Paul is calling us back to purity, sincerity, integrity. We need to look at everything that we do personally and corporately to see if there's any hint of manipulation or maneuverability. Friends, the market has been flooded with ministries and ministers whose motives are impure, using the gospel for their own ends. Craftiness here is the word that Paul uses, and it's a very good word. It's used elsewhere in the scripture specifically to describe the tactics of Satan. 2 Corinthians 11.3, for example... Paul says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The world is full of all kinds of hucksters who prostitute the word of God for their own end. And the gospel they preach is neither simple nor is it pure. Many good-hearted, well-meaning Christians and Christ-loving saints are unwittingly being sucked into their wake. A few weeks ago, we looked at some of that. Some, to be sure, are lured in innocently, but most are deceived largely because they don't take the time to subject what they hear to this scrutiny of Scripture. And we encounter these kinds of things every day, whether you're on the street or watching television or on the Internet, at this, your doorstep even. There is no patch of earth where their foot does not tread or their doctrine does not touch. And I am in total agreement with the writer who said, the time has come to tolerate religious hucksters no longer. They have muddled the altars and shattered the stained glass. They manipulate the easily deceived. They strip mine faith to get a dollar and rape the pew to get a payment. Our master unveiled their scams and he says, so must we. So you need to learn to recognize them by at least two traits. Number one, they emphasize their profit more than the profit. And secondly, they build more fences than they build faith. Those two are very clear ones that you can identify. Paul warned Timothy about them and identified them as, quote, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. He says, these are men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He wrote to the Romans, the church at Rome, in Romans 16, 
verses 17 and 18, he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, we would be tempted very easily here to look at what I've just said on a corporate level. And you say, well, you know, I can easily identify a false ministry out there. Paul here to the Romans brings it down to a personal level. Do you know that there are people in the church that will be part of a small group and that will be part of your little group or whatever it is that may not necessarily let you on to the fact that they are manipulating and using the scripture to their own selfish ends in order to gain an advantage. We run into those people all the time. What has that done for the character of Christ's church? I recently let, read of two elderly ladies. They were visiting a somewhat overcrowded cemetery. And they came upon an inscription that read like this. Here lies John Smith, a preacher and an honest man. Good heavens, said one lady to the other. Isn't it awful that they had to put two people in the same grave? That's unfortunate, if that's what it's come to. An enduring ministry must be characterized by an attitude of humility, spiritual vitality, inward sincerity, and then, fourthly, outward integrity. Outward integrity. We must maintain an uncluttered display of the truth. Verse 2, the last part of the verse. It says, um, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Christianity, my friends, keeps no secrets and is not a secret to be kept. If our ministry is to endure, if your ministry is to endure, we must refuse to wear masks or play games, as Eugene Peterson put it. We don't need to trap people, trick people, seduce people into Christianity. What we need to do is be simply out front, in the open, and totally visible. Amen? Our faith should be depended upon openly, communicated clearly, and offered freely. We don't blunt its edge. We don't conceal its truth or explain it away. We simply present it in the most relevant, creative, and understandable way that we can without compromising its integrity or ours. The message renders this verse like this. We keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display. I like that. And we do it not for popularity. We don't do it for financial stability. We don't do it for social status. We do it with humility, vitality, sincerity, and integrity, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, keeping in mind that we are always operating in the sight of God. Lasting ministry depends on a life-changing message. And so, first and foremost, I'm convinced that in order for the church to survive, we need to restore character to the ministry. Second, <laughs> you're counting this down, I can tell. We got three more to go. It's already quarter past 11. They start to go faster as we go downhill. Secondly, I'm convinced that in order for the church to survive, we must recognize the confusion of the masses. Look at verses 3 and 4. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that it might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, in the previous chapter, Paul claimed that the Jews, to the Jews, the gospel was veiled. In chapter 3. That's exactly the case everywhere that we minister. You know that, right? The gospel is not readily seen or accepted by the majority of people today. People aren't falling over themselves to get to Christ. Granted, there are some people who seem to be ripe and ready. And as soon as you begin to speak about spiritual things, their face brightens up and they're quick to respond and the veil is lifted. 
These are the honest seekers of truth who want to know God. And as soon as they hear the word of Christ's truth, they are willing to turn to him in faith and the veil is lifted. But that's not always the case, is it? There are many who flat out refuse to accept the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. In fact, they hate you for exposing them to it. The veil is very heavy for them. That was certainly the case in Paul's journeys. Some of his accusers claimed that Paul was preaching a secretive, veiled message that only the super spiritual could accept and understand. And people claim the same thing today. What we need to recognize is that the confusion arises not from the message that we preach, hopefully, but from the enemy of Christ. That's what it says here in this verse. Satan has veiled the message. He's blinded people so they cannot see the truth. He has put so much of the world in front of them that they can't get past their own sinful pleasures and selfish endeavors to acknowledge that they even need salvation. I read a great comment the other day. Here it is. The devil distracts, God interrupts. And for some reason, we fall prey to the one and grow oblivious to the other. Satan knows that the message of Christ's death and resurrection cannot be obliterated, but it can be obstructed. And that's his plan. He uses our own ideas about salvation, our own rules, our own rituals, our own twisted philosophies, our human desires, and even our own religion to blind our hearts to the true way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Listen, Satan is the master of obstruction. He calls, Paul calls him the God of this age. In a sense, he is a God to those who don't know Christ because whether they know it or not, they are paying homage to him and are unwitting prey to his deception. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says this, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If our message is veiled, it is only to those who refuse to believe. The gospel is only veiled to those who are perishing, it says in verse 3. That's an intense word there, by the way. It refers to someone who's on the road to complete and utter ruin and inevitable doom unless a complete transformation of life takes place. Jesus said that's precisely the desire of the devil to steal and kill and destroy but Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. In fact, one of the most descriptive names of Satan in Scripture is Apollyon. Revelation 9, verse 11, which means destroyer. And it comes from the same Greek word as this word that Paul uses here, perishing. Satan blinds people to the truth of the gospel in order to ultimately and eternally destroy them. The Living Bible describes the one who is perishing here in this verse as, quote, one on the road to eternal death. J.B. Phillips identifies it this way, those who are spiritually dying. How many times do we forget that? How often do we forget that on a daily basis? You know, in our day of love wins and our aversion to concepts like sin and death and judgment and hell, that there are people we meet every single day that are running toward an eternity in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's Jesus' words. We need to always remember that the people who are blinded to the gospel are dying. Do we look at it that way? I have to be honest with you, I forget that. When we present the gospel to somebody, we often think, well, it's their option. They can accept it or they don't have to accept it. Sometimes we present it that way. 
do we, do we really get it? Do I really get it that the person I'm talking to is dying spiritually? These people are being systematically destroyed by the God of this world and will be eternally damned without Christ. You know what that should do? It should make us more aware of the grace and mercy we've received. It ought to make us more compassionate toward other people whose minds have been blinded by Satan. It ought to make us more alert to the spiritual needs of every person that we encounter, especially those that are closest to us. It ought to make us less concerned about ourselves. It ought to remind us that non-believers are not the enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. Satan is a destroyer of people and an obstructor of light. He knows that if he can control the thoughts and reasonings and opinions and hopes and aspirations and the impulses of a man or a woman, he will control that person. He obstructs the truth that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, it says here in verse 4. He makes people fall so in love with their sin that they hate the truth. Their eyes become so accustomed to the dark that they cannot tolerate the light. Hey, when my in-laws first got saved and they came at Denise and I with the gospel of light, and they were shining it right straight in our eyes, blinding us almost to it. I began to hate every encounter that I had with them. I just didn't believe it. But as soon as God took the veil away from my eyes and I recognized the message that they were speaking, what a difference. What a huge difference in my perception of what they were trying to tell me. I knew at that point why I couldn't tolerate that message before. Because it was a conviction of my sinful lifestyle. And I didn't want to leave it. It's that simple. I mean, it can get more complicated than that. But when you pare it right down to the end, John chapter 3, verse 19, verses 19 and 20. We forget these verses because we're so focused on John 3, 16. What about 319 and 20? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Now, I'm not one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. And, and usually I bristle at that kind of thing. But I remember when somebody confronted me, it took that kind of a confrontation in my life in order to get me saved. Because I was so dug in, so dug into my own stuff in, in the darkness that I was wandering around. And H.A. Ironside in a message delivered at Moody Church in Chicago years ago, I think he nailed it. He said, if any man says, there are things in the Bible that I cannot believe, I can tell him why. H.A. Ironside says, it's because there are things in his life that the Bible condemns of which he does not wish to repent. There are sins that mean more to him than Christ. He would rather indulge in them than be delivered from them. The moment a man comes to the place where he desires God's will above all else, I am ready to renounce my sin, to be freed from it. That man will not have any trouble believing the gospel. Satan's plan is to obstruct the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that people cannot find their way to God. That's what he wants to do. He will blur the image of Jesus Christ because he knows that it's only through Christ that we can come to know the Father. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. It's only possible to get to the Father through Jesus. Therefore, it is no surprise that Satan wants to blind people to Jesus, the real Jesus. Satan will allow you to embrace the name of Jesus. 
to extol his character, to enlist some of his teachings, even quote his sayings, exhibit his virtues in your life, even entertain a respect for his sacrificial death, yet he will never, I repeat, he will never allow someone to enter into and experience an intimate relationship with Jesus. Never. Because he knows that'll save them. That's why a personal relationship to Jesus is not preached in many churches today. That is the one thing that Satan will not tolerate. But that is the one thing for which the true church exists. It's why we're here. And it's why the church will endure. That was Paul's philosophy of ministry. For we do not preach ourselves, it says in verse 5, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So thirdly, I'm convinced that in order for the church to survive, we must revitalize the conviction of its messengers. That's what this message is all about. You know what Paul preached? Jesus. That's why he could say with confidence things like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort, exhort you therefore be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Philippians 4.9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. How could Paul say such things? Would you say something like that to somebody? Could you? You know why he said it? Because he was fully convinced of and fully committed to a life-changing message. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 2, Paul said this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why he could say that. Because in Galatians 2.20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith the only Son of God who loved me and died for me. And then in chapter 6, he says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus, right? Uh, who, uh, showing that I've been crucified to the world and the world been crucified to me. Why? Because if we truly live by that philosophy, we could say the same thing that Paul did. That is what every one of us in this room ought to be striving for, Right? That is the only way we will fulfill our mission statement and truly communicate Christ to the community. People are evaluating Jesus Christ, you know how, on the basis of what they see in us and hear us say. And by our lifestyle, we are either leading people closer to Jesus or away from him. I've said that a million times. Not enough for me to say it, though. I need to live it. And so do you. Our conviction as messengers of Christ is very straightforward, very straightforward. Jesus is Lord of all, and you and I are servants of all. That's the plain heart, unadulterated truth. We do not preach ourselves. Verse 5, underline that. For we do not preach ourselves. No matter how famous we become, no matter how well we represent the truth, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants. So a ministry that endures will preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Why? What's the reason? Because the same God who spoke light into existence in order to dispel the darkness of the universe at creation has invaded the hearts of all who believe in order to illuminate the spiritual darkness we all were lost in before coming to Christ. That's verse 7. It's a treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Do you know what the thing about the earthen vessel is? This power that resides inside the earthen vessel? Someone once told me once, read that verse again. In order for that light to shine, the vessel needs to be broken. That's what compels us to share it. 
the fact that we've been broken before God, broken before Christ at the foot of the cross, and we've come undone, and he, by his mercy and grace, has restored us and given us a ministry. So fourthly, I'm convinced that in order for the church to survive, we must realize the compulsion of that message. That's in verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remember the old uh, TV series Superman. And there was an excerpt that I once used in a message somewhere years ago. Lois Lane says, the world doesn't need a savior. Superman says, what do you hear? Lois says, I don't hear anything. Superman says, I hear everything. And the world is crying for a savior. How can we keep that hidden? Jesus hears everything. The world is crying for a savior. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, why aren't we hearing it the way Jesus hears it? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, You are the world's light. A city on a hill, glowing in the night for all to see. Don't hide your light. Shine it. Let it shine for all. So friends, take your faith seriously. A lasting ministry depends upon a life-changing message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the treasure that you have placed within us, these broken vessels, these jars of clay that we call our earthly human bodies. And you've transformed that place, Lord God, into a temple of your dwelling. I can't understand that. It's well beyond my comprehension, Lord God, that you would choose to live inside of us. Father, if we as a church and as a Christian people are going to make it to the finish line and to help others do the same thing, help us, Lord God, to restore Christ-like character to the ministry. Because people in the world are confused about who you are. Help us to be men and women of conviction that the Lord Jesus is Lord of all and we are his servants. And propel us, Lord God, by the light of Christ that lives in us and cannot be contained. May we become beacons to the world around us that is groping and stumbling about in the dark. For I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.